Acts chapter 6, please, if you can turn back to that passage. We've entitled the message, The Need for Deacons. The Need for Deacons. Let's just unite our heart together. In a word of prayer as we come to the preaching of God's precious word. Father in heaven, we bless thee for the church that thou hast redeemed with precious blood. We thank the Lord one day that church will be no longer militant, but it will be church glorified. Presented before our God, our Heavenly Father, without spot or wrinkle. And, O God, we pray in the meanwhile, down here on earth, that we might, Lord, desire to be a church that Thou canst bless. A church, Lord, that uh, is known for uh, walking in accordance to what Thy Word tells us. And, Lord, we pray that we might be men and women of God. We ask, Lord, you'd bring us into this passage concerning this subject. Teach us. Give us the teachable spirit. Oh, God, we know. We know it only too well. The flesh is prone to go its own way and have its own thoughts. But, Lord, we pray against the flesh. And we pray, oh, God, that our will might be in subjection to thy will. And Lord, that we might desire thy might. Or to that end, bless every waiting heart. Bless Lord, as we seek to bring this word, fill us with thy spirit and with power. Give me words from thyself that must and shall prevail, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure we marvel when we read about the early church in the book of the Acts. The day of Pentecost had fully come, as we know, in chapter 2. And the Lord was pleased to add unto his church. And by the end of chapter 2, we read that the Lord added unto his church such as should be saved. But you know, there's a continual adding. Until we read a subtle difference when we come to the words, opening words of chapter 6 that we've read this morning. And instead of adding, there's a multiplying now. But it was also in those days when the number of the disciples were multiplied that some problems were to arise. The devil had sought to attack the church from without in the form of the Sanhedrin. And you just imagine the Sanhedrin, that's the elite, if you like, of the religious order of those days. They were seeing the people, the flocks of people going to these meetings. They were seeing the flocks of people becoming disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And obviously it would have caused consternation. But when they came up against the spirit of the apostles, the apostles who declared we ought to obey God rather than men. And by the way, men and women, that's the sort of spirit that increasingly we need to adopt in these days again. But when they come up against that spirit, they realized that they could do little to hinder the church. But that doesn't mean that the devil waves a white flag of surrender. Because when he doesn't succeed in one area, he will attack in another. And this time the attack comes from within. And as often is the case, not only in church circles or congregations, but also in personal and family circles, it had to do with money. And there was a particular grievance which had arisen from one section suggesting discrimination. You see, men and women, there truly is nothing new under the sun. In the church there were the Hebrew Jews. But there were also the Greek 
speaking Jews. And the latter murmured that their widows were neglected by the others in the distribution of the common funds for the poor. And underneath it all was the purpose of the devil to divide the membership, to discourage the leadership. And you'll note that when the murmuring spirit comes in, then the spirit of being in one accord goes out. I don't know why you've ever uh, noted that or not, but if you turn over, for example, to chapter 2, what we have already made reference to, you'll see there in the verse 1, we don't have to go any further, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. We have it also in chapter 1. They met there in the upper room. They prayed in one accord. And men and women simply means in one heart and one mind. That's what that prayer meeting was characterized by. They were in one heart. They were in one mind. In the day of Pentecost, they were in one heart and one mind. They were in one accord. And the first five chapters you will come across that phrase five times over. But after chapter 6, when the problems come in, you'll not read it for another ten chapters. The murmuring comes in. The one accord goes out. But what we note in these opening verses is how Satan was foiled in seeing his purposes come to pass. For the wisdom of the apostles is noted in that they suggested, they proposed that another body of men to help in the everyday running of the church. And it's what has become known as the deacons. What is recorded for us here is the example of the deacons being elected for the congregation or for the church. And that's what we want uh, to give attention to this morning. I want you to notice, first of all, here, the necessity of the deacon. Now, because we term it in our circles, because we term it uh, more so in our denomination as committee, that shouldn't deflect us from the term that is used here in the New Testament and in the early church. They're one and the same position. It is that of the deacon. It's clear from the direct revelation which God has given by his word. That's especially seen in the pastoral epistles of Timothy and Titus, but also from the example here of the early church throughout the the, the word here, and especially throughout the book of Acts, I should say, but especially in the passage that is before us in particular. I want you to consider, in particular, the meaning of the deacon. It's clear from these words the word deacon is not actually seen. In fact, it is only used in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But yet here's a passage where it is commonly agreed concerns the office and concerns the election of the deacons. And the word itself, while it may not be used, yet its meaning is found. In verse 2, the work of the deacon is in view. We read this. It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. You see the word serve? It comes from the very same word from which we get deacon. The word administration in verse 1 is, a, is again the same word. And so while deacons is only found, uh, seen three times, there are close to 30 other times in which the work uh, of the deacon or its meaning is rendered either minister or serve. That essentially is the work of the deacon. What's the work of the deacon in the church all about? It's about service. 
They're servants to the eldership. They're servants to the congregation. And ultimately, primarily, as with every believer, they're servants unto Christ Himself. And so, in one sense, all of God's redeemed are to be servants unto Christ. He has saved us. He has redeemed us with His own precious blood. Why? To purge our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. We're all servants. We're all in that full-time work, if you like. But what so much about the meaning, what about the nature of the work? While in the midst of great blessing, remember here is revival, really. This is the early church. It's a time of great blessing. And it's saying that the old enemy of God's work and his people is seen to be still at work. And none more so than the murmuring spirit. That murmuring spirit that was noted back in the camp of Israel as they were brought out of Egypt and on the way to the promised land. That same murmuring spirit now appears in the early church. Look at the words of verse 1. In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily administration. And this murmuring was due to the relatively small matter, an accusation that some of their widows were being neglected. And that being so, it gives us the idea of the nature of the work that these deacons were to be involved in. The work of the deacon pertains to the material side of God's work, while the eldership, it governs the spiritual side. Look at the words of verse 4. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. There's the apostles. There's the elders. That's our business. That's what we have to get on with. But you get on with the rest. consideration of the phrase serving of tables. That, that's what uh, they bring out there. It brings before us the nature of the deacon's work. You know, you, you know of course, the table is used for the purpose of food. And God willing, in a short while you'll be at the table. And there again the task is brought out. Where there was to be a provision of the daily needs for the church family. It's a very practical way of bringing it out. They were to serve tables. It doesn't mean, of course, that the women aren't to serve the tables or serve the tea or the supper. That's not what it means at all. But it is a very practical way of showing the, 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 the difference between the deacon and the elder. But I want to take that little thought a bit, a bit further because I want you to remember that such an expression was also used in connection with money. And if you turn back to Matthew chapter 21, you'll see what I mean by that. The Savior coming into the tabernacle In fact, he did this both at the start of his earthly ministry as well as at the end of it. Verse 12, Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. It was just like a marketplace. It wasn't a place that was resembling a house of worship. 
But they brought every commodity in and the, uh, and the exchanging of money and the buying of the doves for the sacrifices and all of that. And the Lord came in and he overturned the tables. And he said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but ye have made a den of thieves. And there again you have the tables mentioned. And the tables mentioned in that context had to do with money. What is the nature of the work? It's the material business of God's house, the daily needs in the practical sense, the looking after of the finances in God's work. And men and women, does that not lead us to show us the importance of this office? It's not to be regarded as an unimportant task. After all, the Lord himself has instituted such an office. It's in the Word. It's in the early church. And he has decreed such positions to govern his church. Neither, by the way, is it right for the notion that what I am doing is more important than what someone else is doing. That's pride. Whatever the work that the Lord has for us, it ought to be considered as important, none more so than the looking after the material aspect, the material side of his church is concerned. If the material side wasn't looked after in the house of God, you would come on the Lord's day and the heat wouldn't be on. The place wouldn't be cleaned. Practical orders. The money wouldn't be lodged in the bank, for example. All of that. And it shows you the, the nature, but it shows you the importance of what is in view here. You might be interested to know that the word in verse 3 brings the importance of this office before us. You notice the word says there, they were to appoint these men over this business. That word business could be rendered like this. Whom we may appoint over this necessity. For that's what the word means. Necessity. The work then of the deacon is twofold, is needful, are ye necessary, for without it and the work of God cannot function right. And for those who would be elected into this office then, they must realize that it is essential because by having a faithful committee, they are allowing the preaching, they are allowing the ruling elders to carry out the spiritual side of God's work unhindered. And essentially that's what the apostles are about here. As we're going to look at now in verse 3. Why? Verse 4, but we will give ourselves... Continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. There was a need of the deacon then. I want you to notice the consideration of the deacon. When the twelve called the church together, they put before them not only the necessity of this office of having such men, but they also give them guidance as to who they might consider fit for such a role. The first thing that is stated is that those to be elected would be found among them. Look at verse 3. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report. Very basic truth there is this. Those to be considered were men who already were known to be saved and men who already part of the work. They were a part of the membership of the church. Something that cannot be ignored when you read of the book of Acts. You come back to chapter 2, for example, verse 47. 
It says, praising God, this is where they met, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. He added to what? He added to the church. The church that you read about in chapter 1 and numbered there 120 in the upper room. The church that you read about in chapter 2 after the day of Pentecost was fully come in when the Lord saved 3,000 souls and they were added unto the church. 120. And the context is not the church in the universal sense. But the context, or a general sense, but the context is to the congregation in Jerusalem. For that's where they met, 120, and then the Lord added unto them, and he added unto the church such as should be saved. In other words, the Lord led those who were saved to join themselves unto the local assembly. And after a while, of course, they spread out. They went everywhere preaching the word. And other congregations were formed. But you know, not all did so. That is, not all joined themselves to it. You turn to chapter 5, and the words are verse 11. It was after the time of the death of Ananias and Sapphira. It says, And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. And the Holy Ghost makes the difference between those who were in membership and those who were outside membership. Verse 13, And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. There were those who wouldn't join. There were the hypocrites that stayed clear of it. And so, I know it's a different subject, but it is a scriptural principle that those whom the Lord has saved ought to join themselves to the body, ought to join themselves to the church body and get behind that work. And thank God we have had those who have come into membership even during the last number of months. You might be exercised to do the same child of God that you haven't done it already. And it's from such men in that membership that these deacons were to be considered. For the apostle says, Brethren, look ye out among you. Among you. There's another poignant truth. Those to be considered fit for office already were known to be serving the Lord. They're already there. Look ye out among you, seven men. Important that when considering perspective, diggings to realize it's not the case that because a man is voted into office, then he will have those qualities necessary. That's putting the proverbial cart before the horse. But rather the words of verse 3 teaches those qualities will already be seen. They'll already be there. That man will already have displayed what it takes. He will already be serving the Lord. He will already have displayed that zeal for God's work. He'll already have shown that unselfish character. He already will be a praying man. Communicant membership, if you're not at the prayer meeting, get to the prayer meeting, and there you'll see who the men are already there praying. And that'll whittle down your list. They have a heart for the furtherance of the gospel. They'll already have been recognized by the congregation as one who has the character and qualities for such an office. 
They'll be in the place of prayer, whether it's on a Sunday morning, evening, whether it's on a Thursday night. What's more, the Lord warns against those who would be novices. The very character of these seven men that were chosen in Acts implies that Stephen or Philip is any to go by. And by implication, the other five as well, that they were by no means novices in the faith. Now, just to make it clear, it's nothing to do with age. But rather, it has to do well with, with how well they've grown, how mature they are in the Lord. That's the thought. Not novices. We'll touch on that again in the weeks to come because it's brought out in Timothy, for example. Here were men who were strong in the faith. They weren't just new converts. They weren't those who were yet feeding on the milk of the Word, of God's Word. You've only got to read the rest of chapter 7 of Acts and see how Stephen stood up against his accusers, how he defended the faith, how he took them back into their Old Testament Scriptures, and he knew the Word. He was a man who knew the book. You think of Philip and how he was to be used of God in Samaria and the revival there as he preached Christ. And then the Spirit took him away and the Spirit brought him into the, uh, into the desert and he joined himself unto that Ethiopian in his chariot and he become, began of the same Scriptures and preached unto him Jesus. That is the Scriptures of, from the book of Isaiah. Stephen and Philip were some of the best preachers that the early church had, but they were chosen to be deacons. That's the point I'm making. The men to be considered will already have had time to develop as a believer, as a servant of Christ, and not be novices. It is not to be thought that they will mature and grow as the result of being elected. Or the idea that suggests, there's a man, if given a chance, in office he'll grow in Christ. You know, the Apostle Paul gave a strong word to young Timothy about the same, just as emphatic. 1 Timothy 3, verse 9 and 10 says this, Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, and let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. They first were to be proved before they would ever get into the office. It brings us to a further thought there must be spiritual men. These men in Acts were men who were spirit-filled men. They were under the control of the Holy Spirit. And in the light of that, it is no wonder that it is illustrated with the use of strong drink and the influence of wine. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes, verse 18, he says, And be not drunk with wine wherein is access, but be filled with the Spirit. The, the illustration is, is pretty easy to work out because it brings us to that consideration. Drink controls the heart. Drink controls the mind. Drink controls the will and the affections. And it changes behavior. It changes a man's speech. It changes a man's walk. But the believer is not to be drunk with wine. But the believer is to be under the control by the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost in contrast. He is to speak in the Spirit. He's to walk in the Spirit. He's to behave as a child of God. 
When God's Spirit controls us, then there's a difference that will be recognizable. But that also implies, dear people, that it is quite possible to be saved. It's quite possible to be in the house of God, in the church every Sabbath, and yet not be filled with God's Spirit. Trying to walk the Christian life by the flesh. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Child of God, you should be praying every morning before you go to your work that you would be spirit-filled. What God's church needs is for people to be spirit-filled, not just the positions. Not just the positions. The wives of the elders need to be spiritful. The wives of the committee need to be spiritful. The Sunday school teacher, the youth leader, whatever. And a man who counts the work of God important, who gives himself to that work, who's found praying privately and in publicly for that work, who has a heart and a burden that the witness of God might have a greater impact in the area, is a man who will count the office of committee as important. Conversely, men who display carnality and spiritual weakness ought not to be considered to be a deacon. A man who's diligent for the Lord, who could be trusted in the spiritual realm, is a man who will look after the material and the lesser side of God's work. Rather than ask one another who to appoint into such an office, how we need to ask God instead to guide us. I've said that already by way of preface. We have elections in this country time without number. There's canvassing all of that. That's not to be mentioned among this greater offices of the church of God. That's getting before God, men and women. And there's no confusion with him. Seek his face. In fact, I would say uh, regarding that final list, there's men not need to take their names off because God's already set them up, set those men apart from them. Who will who will hold this position? What about the qualities of the deacon? Bringing to mind the characteristics that would be needful for such a work. The apostles primarily major on two things. Look at verse 3 again. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. They were to be those who had an honest report. Those who had wisdom. That's the second thing. They had to be known to be honest. And therefore, reliable in carrying out the work at hand. And having already given the background to this chapter, it was necessary that these men would be reliable in what you will uh, perceive to be a delicate situation. The Lord was multiplying the disciples in his church, but then there was this murmuring that arose from the Greek-speaking Jews. The accusation made that their widows were being neglected, and so it it took men who were reliable in such a case. It must needs be that the deacon be known for their honesty, for their reliability, and therefore able to handle situations and the work of God properly. 
Indeed, the word honest report it gives a sense of having borne witness to that effect already. Both to those within the church, the congregation, as well as to those outside it. And so when difficult decisions are to be made, they're not those who shirk their responsibilities, but relying on the grace of God, they will be able to handle it. Because they're men of honest report. I'm not interested, listen to this, I'm not interested in someone who puts on a good show on the Sunday. I've not mentioned names, but I have worked with such. And if nearly thought you put the, they put on the suit and they put on a good appearance for the Lord's day and people thought there was nothing uh, wrong with them. They thought they were an angel. See, the rest of the week, they were like that devil to work with. And maybe you can uh, use the same illustration in your workplace. But the honest report will be seen not only by those that you sit beside in the pew, but it will be noted by those outside the church by your neighbors, by those you come across in your workplace. They might be able to describe what you are, but they'll be able to say, you know, there's an honest man. Then there's the quality of wisdom. One who can not only handle things properly and reliably, but also wisely. In 1 Timothy, which we'll look at again in the coming weeks, of course, it reveals if they're married... That will already prove itself in their own home and in their marriage. There'll be wisdom there. It's not the wisdom of this world that is needed. But the wisdom of this world we read in 1 Corinthians is foolishness with God. But it is that wisdom which alone comes from God. That wisdom which is connected, which is the outworking of being filled with the Spirit of God. This heavenly wisdom comes from God alone. And what one of us could not say that we are in need continually of such wisdom. Indeed, everyone on that voting list would readily cry out, Who is sufficient for these things? As a preacher, as a minister, I stand in this pulpit and I say, I'm not sufficient for these things. But thank God, my sufficiency and your sufficiency is of the Lord. And if you want to note the greatest example of a deacon, then look not to Stephen or Philip or these other five. Look not even to the rest that you might read about in the book of Acts, but look instead and consider the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, why would we go there? I've already noted to you that the word deacon is translated as minister. Romans chapter 15, verse 8, just to give you a verse. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Christ came as a deacon. He came to serve. You know the words, of course, maybe, of Matthew chapter 20 and 28. They bring before us the extent of such service. It simply says, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. That service was, was noted. It was witnessed. When the Lord washed his disciples' feet, 
We'll not take time this morning. John 13, uh, you may want to look it up when you get home. And there, when the supper was ended, he drew aside his garments and he donned himself with a towel. And he proceeded to wash the disciples' feet, a most menial task. Feet were dirty and dusty in those days. In Palestine, of course, they opened sandals, etc. And so it was needful that the feet be washed. And Peter tried to remonstrate, oh, you're not going to wash my feet, Lord. Peter had to be taught, taught his feet needed to be washed too. There's a spiritual message in that. I'll not go there this morning. But the Savior not only washed the disciples' feet, but he wiped the disciples' feet. He finished the work. But you know, his service was supremely seen when the laying down of his life upon the cross. So he purchased his church with his own precious blood. He was the sinner's substitute. He was the Son of God, a very God. And yet he took the servant's place, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, and all that's encapsulated within those words, the cruelty, the spitting, the putting of the crown of thorns into his brow, the beating, the piercing of his hands and his feet. And the Savior laid down his life. He had the power to lay it down. He had the power to take it up again. He is the ultimate deacon. What's the greatest incentive to be a faithful committee man in the congregation here in Market Hill Free Church to do the work to the best of your ability? I'll tell you, it's Christ. It's Christ himself. The example he said of the selfless sacrifice and of service that he, that he offered and that he rendered. And men and women, can I just take it one step further? You might ask, what's the ultimate character that you're looking for? What's the ultimate character that God looks for in the men that are to hold this office, that are to be elected to the office of the deacon? I'll tell you what it is. It's Christ-likeness. That essentially is what the apostles were saying to the people. Look ye out among you men, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom may they appoint over this business. You've all heard of Robert Murray McShane. Robert Murray McShane in his very short ministry did more than most ministers put together. Saw great work done. And McShane said this, it's not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Christ. That's a powerful statement, you know. Because there's many of us can line up and say, We're, we haven't got great talents. Why would the Lord choose us? But he blesses Christ's likeness. I want to leave that thought not only for prospective deacons or committee men, I want to leave that thought for every soul this morning. Is there a Christ likeness seen in your life? Man, woman, young person. That's what God blesses.
May the Lord bless his word even to our hearts this morning for his own name's sake.